you may or may not have left your lights on this morning. Daniel chapter 5 is going to be our, our text this morning. We are studying in the book of Daniel, and this week and next we will wrap up our, our series in Daniel because we won't go any further than chapter 6, uh, at least at this point in our study of Daniel. But we're going to be in chapter 5 this morning looking at a story that no doubt will, will be familiar to you, that will have some familiarity. There are certain phrases in our English language that are actually lifted from the, from the Bible itself, phrases that are borrowed from the authorized version of 1611, one of the earliest translations into the English language from the Latin. And of course, we know the authorized version more commonly by the name the King James Version. But uh, listen, listen to some of these phrases that, that actually are, are lifted, as I've said already, lifted directly from that, but you can recognize these. The, a cross to bear, when we speak about someone having a, their cross to bear, when we talk about a house that's divided against itself, a labor of love, the phrase a labor of love, the phrase sign of the times, phrase two-edged sword, Reap what you sow. We've all heard of that, right? You reap what you sow. Or how about go the extra mile when you hear about someone who will go the extra mile. Or even the phrase, in the twinkling of an eye. We know about the, how something happens quickly and suddenly, sort of like how OSU lost their football game in the twinkling of an eye yesterday. Too soon? Too soon. Okay, too soon. You know, Central Michigan should just give it back. Uh, that would be the right thing, I suppose, to do. Uh, but we'll see if that happens. Or how about this phrase? The handwriting on the wall. I couldn't let that one go, by the way. I had to make some kind of a jab. Because OU, uh, of course, uh, didn't lose unfairly. They just handed the game away a week ago. And they had to play a powder puff like Louisiana Monroe to get a win. But different sermon, different day, right? Handwriting on the wall is a phrase that, that we know. And, and actually, that phrase, when we talk about the handwriting on the wall, comes directly from this story in Daniel chapter 5 that we're going to look at this morning. And so, as we, as we look at this, no doubt you will recognize, you'll, you'll, even if you don't know the story per se, you will recognize instantly the, the, the idea and where this comes from as we look at this in Daniel chapter 5. And so in your notes, in the back of your worship guide, there's a place where you can follow along. There are four different blanks, and, and essentially what we're going to see is four different movements, if you will, four different parts to the, the, the story that's given to us in Daniel chapter 5. And of course, at the end, we'll draw some, some points of application, some conclusions that that really take this story and bring it home in our lives. But as we look at these, the first point, if you will, the first movement that we see in Daniel chapter 5 has to do with the idolatry that's at play in this story. So we see first idolatry in verses 1 through 4. Let's read together. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, I want to give some explanation of what's happening here in the midst of all of this. First of all, you recognize that there's a new king now. Prior to this, in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, the king at the center of the story has been a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar is no longer king. The, the story has jumped forward in time now to a point where Belshazzar is the king over the Babylon Empire. Belshazzar was not the immediate successor to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there were a series of kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But in, in time, 
uh, it really, in, in a short matter of time, each of these different kings was deposed for mismanaging the kingdom and, and different problems that existed in the kingdom. And, and actually, what happened is that the, the true king over Babylon at this point in time was Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar, but Nabonidus was notorious for sort of abandoning his throne. He would leave his son, Belshazzar, as the co-regent or the co-ruler, the prince, essentially. He would leave in charge of the kingdom, and then Nabonidus would go off and he would he would pursue all of these different interests that he has. For example, one of the interests that it seems that historians believe likely was happening during this period of time is that there were a series of oases, oases, if you will, in the, in the area of Mesopotamia, and that, that essentially Nabonidus has abandoned the throne. He's left his son, Belshazzar, in charge, and he is, he is building up these oases uh, communities, these oases, I'm not even sure how you say the, the plural of that, right? And, and he's, he's left the, the kingdom in the hands of his son who was mismanaging things. Now, Belshazzar was an able soldier, but he was a horrible ruler. He, he, he made a very poor ruler. And even at the time that this is happening, okay, and the events that we understand that are happening in this story, History outside of the Bible would tell us that on this very day, on this very, this very night that the story speaks of, for Belshazzar to be partying, to be having a feast with all of his lords and his princes was absolute foolishness. It was, it was vain idolatry at work because Belshazzar believes himself to be the, the, the anointed hand of, of the, the Babylonian gods, Marduk and Sin, and so he believes himself to be the appointed one, the, the ruler who is gifted from the gods, so to speak, and there would, no one would be able to conquer him in all of his vast might and all of his vast kingdom, but what history tells us is that in actuality, for a period now of several weeks, perhaps even several months, the, the Persians had been surrounding Babylon and up, up river, up river from where the city of Babylon sat, the, the river Euphrates flowed right through the heart of the, sitter, the, the center of the city of Babylon, and up river, the Persians had diverted the stream of the Euphrates River into some marshlands. And so essentially what they had done is they recognized that they could not conquer the city of Babylon because the city of Babylon was well fortified. And not only that, the city had a river, a fresh water supply that flowed right through the heart of the city. And so even if you could surround the city, they had food supply that would last for several years and a fresh water source that flowed right through the heart of the city. And so seemingly there was no way to conquer the city of Babylon, which is part of why Babylon considered itself to be impenetrable. But the Persians came up with an idea that they would simply divert the flow of the river. And so over the course of several weeks, even several months, they began to build a series of canals that diverted the flow of the Euphrates away from its main stream and just essentially emptied it into some marshland and created a swamp. But as they did that, the river level lowered to the point where the once mighty Euphrates, historians say, was now at a point where it was maybe about thigh deep at its deepest. And so the canal 
that led into and under the wall of the city of Babylon, the soldiers of the Persians were simply able to just march right in. They just walked in the dry riverbed into the city, and they conquered, history tells us, they conquered the great city of Babylon without a fight because they surrounded the city, and then, unbeknownst to the Babylonians who were gathered in this revelry, they marched right in and took the city. So it was foolishness, it was vanity, it was arrogance and pride even that led Belshazzar to be feasting with his lords all the while he was surrounded by this mighty army that, that stood to take him out. Some background to what's happening here, right? So not only is the party and the feast itself uh, sinful and, and hedonistic, but the very fact that they would be partying when they were surrounded and, and then the empire was about to fall tells you more about the kind of ruler that Belshazzar was. Verse 2 says, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, which of course is a way of saying that when he was good and drunk, right, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now, a couple things in verse 2 that I, I want to point out. First of all, it refers here to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. That doesn't mean that he was literally his father, because as I've said already, his, his biological father was Nabonidus. But father in the sense of his heir. He was in the line of, he was an heir to the throne through the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar. And these vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, these were the sacred objects that would have existed inside of the temple, inside of the holy place, the, the lampstand, the, 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 the bowl that the, the, the showbread would have been in, and, and these different objects, these sacred objects, not only because of their, their material worth, they were made out of precious metals, gold and silver and these things, but they're, more than that, they're precious because of their significance. They were used in the worship of God that was appointed in the law, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so these very items that were in every way sacred to the Israelites were, were brought out into the great banquet hall. They were displayed, and now they, would, they were drinking from them. They, it, was, it was sacrilege in the eyes of the Israelites and, and certainly in the eyes of God. And we see what the Lord is about to do because of this in verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them, and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's idolatry that's happening here, right? Obviously, we see the, 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 the well, really, in, in every way, the foolishness of what is happening, that they are feasting, that they are partying, that they are carrying on, and they are praising these gods of gold, silver, stone, wood. Essentially, what they are, what they are doing is they are, they are praising these things as if, look, we have, we have so much, nobody could ever conquer us. There's no way that anyone could, could ever subdue all of our might. Yet what we know is that those very words are about to crash in upon them, right? So we see the idolatry that's, sec that's happening here. Secondly, we see the interruption that takes place. There is an interruption here, an intervention, if you will, literally by the hand of God, we, we could say, uh, as, as the story unfolds. Look at verse 5. And immediately 
The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third ruler there being significant, of course, because Belshazzar himself is the second ruler, right? His father, Nabonidus, was was the first. And so verse 8 tells us, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. It says here that his color changed, which uh, means, of course, that he, he, he grew pale, right? He was flush. He understood that the, the handwriting on the wall, as it were, was significant, that, that it's, it must spell some kind of impending trouble or doom, and he wanted to know the interpretation, but none of these supposed lords, none of these supposed scholars could give him the interpretation, but we've seen this story play itself out before in the book of Daniel, haven't we? That when none of the astrologers, none of the wise men, none of the magicians, none of the scientists of their day could offer an example, there was one who knew the interpretation, who knew the meaning behind all of this. Verse 10 tells us the queen, and likely here, again, scholars believe that the reference to the queen actually is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen mother, as it were, not one of the wives of Belshazzar or the others, but likely the queen mother. Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So this interruption happens. The handwriting on the wall, literally the hand of God, writes on the wall, and, and it disturbed the king. And none of his astrologers, none of his, none of his experts, so to speak, could tell what the meaning of the handwriting on the wall was. But the queen mother remembers there is one. There is a man who, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, had significance in the kingdom. And, and in fact, at this point in the story, we don't know exactly what role Daniel is playing in the kingdom, but clearly he's lost some of the influence and the position and power that he once held because now Belshazzar doesn't even know to think of him, right? But again, scholars believe at this point years have passed and, a, and under a series of different kings and rulers who were all short-lived, now here is this king who no longer knows the story of Daniel or the significance of the influence that Daniel played in the, the life of the kingdom, so to speak, certainly in the life of Nebuchadnezzar as we've studied the last four weeks in the first four chapters of Daniel. And the queen reminds him 
there is a man that God's hand is on who can give you the meaning to this. And so we see the interpretation that Daniel is able to deliver. Let's read in verse 13. That's the the third movement, if you will, by the way. Idolatry, interruption, and now the interpretation that Daniel delivers. Verse 13, we read, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He, of course, offers all of this power, all of this significance, all of this influence to Daniel. If Daniel can, can do what he has done before, if he can solve this problem, if he can give meaning to this. Daniel, at this point, is likely, he's, he's an old man at this point, right? We, we don't know... Um, we don't know exactly how old he would be because we don't know exactly how old he was when, when he was captured. But 62 years have passed from the time that Jerusalem fell to this point, about 62 years. So if Daniel were, let's, let's suppose him to be, uh, if he were 15 years old even, when, when he was carried off into captivity, most scholars believe he was a young man, uh, in his early teens, if he was 15 years old, let's say, as he was carried off into captivity, then now he would be like 77 years old at this point in the story, right? And, and so he's got some wisdom under his belt. You know, one of the things that I look forward to about getting older, there are a lot of things that, that we don't look forward to about getting older, right? But one of the things that I look forward to about getting older is it seems like the older you get, the more you have the ability to just speak your mind and just say things the way that they are, right? And maybe it's because, maybe it's because you do. You, you gain with, with age comes the, the, should at least come the respect, the, 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 in, in many ways, the honor that others will listen. And also, it just comes the wisdom and the experience that you gain through life. And, and there's that understanding at a certain point we arrive in life and we realize that maybe we don't have as long as we once had, right? I mean, that, that, our, that our days are numbered in a sense, at least in the sense that the clock is ticking. And, and there, there goes with that sometimes this, this freedom, this, this, uh, this liberty to, to no longer live with pretense and just get to the heart of the matter, right? That's a nice way of saying that sometimes older people just tell it like it is, right? Daniel does that here, and I love this. I, I love the, not only the boldness that he displays here, uh, not only the, the, uh, the stubbornness that Daniel displays here, but I love just the honesty, the sheer honesty, which Daniel has always been known for. Verse 17 tells us that Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give rewards to another. In other words, Daniel says to the king of the empire, I have no need for you, right? I don't need your gifts. Keep it. Keep your rewards. Keep your titles. Keep your, keep your position. I don't need any of that. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. You remember when 
we saw in Daniel chapter four, there was that moment, that moment of honesty, when because of the relationship that Daniel had with Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel was going to tell the king the dream, but he paused, because in that moment, he knew that this dream did not bear good news for Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he paused, because it's almost as if he didn't want to be he didn't want to have to tell the meaning that he was about to deliver. And he even began with, King, I wish that this news was for your enemies. But it's not. It's a word for you. There's none of that here, right? Daniel's ready to tell this guy what's going on. Because as he walks into this feast, into this dining hall, what does he find? But that the sacred objects of worship of the Jews are being displayed on these tables and being desecrated before the Babylonians who are drinking wine and having this, this, this idolatrous, hedonistic party with all of these sacred objects. Daniel's ready to just give it to them both barrels right here. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and he was dwelling with the wild donkeys. He fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose, all, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parsing. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, that you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel delivers this, this message to the king, right? Essentially, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting, and God is going to take your kingdom from you. That was the, the message. And can you imagine the boldness of Daniel, 77 years of age, let's call him, in his older age, fire still lit in his eyes, the passion burning, his anger kindled by everything that he sees around him in this large dining banqueting hall. And he delivers this word to the king, king, you have not honored the God of heaven, and because of that, your kingdom will be taken from you. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. You see the, the fire burning in Daniel. And the king, of course, what can he do? He's promised that he would, that he would give that he would give third place in the kingdom, so to speak, that he would elevate whoever could give the interpretation to the highest position one could have. And so he, that's what he does. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel, with Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold and was 
put around his neck, and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel delivers with fire this, this interpretation, this condemnation, this word of judgment against Belshazzar. King, because you have not honored God, because you have desecrated his name and his objects of worship, the kingdom will be taken from you. The, the words themselves that were, that were given here, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, are actually in Aramaic. These are words in Aramaic, and, and there are there are words of uh, uh, that mean a measurement. A mina was a, a measure, and so uh, the, the meaner is is a, the mina is is about six hundred grams. It was a measurement of about six hundred grams, and the the word tekel means that it's been divided. That it's been divided, and parsin would would have been the word for the 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 Persians essentially. And so this is a, literally what this means is that you, you have been weighed and measured against the Persians. That's the word. Now, remember what's happening at this very hour, at this very moment, that the handwriting of God came down and wrote on the wall. The city was surrounded by the Persian army who had for weeks now been working a strategic plan and were preparing this very night to walk into the city and capture the drunken king and all of his foolish lords in their palace. The hand of God literally brings this word of judgment as the Babylonians are about to be delivered into the hand of the Persians. You know, the prophet Isaiah foretold that this would happen. Not specifically in so much as giving the details, but in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaks of how God would raise up the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment, but that he would then deliver the Babylonians into the hand of Cyrus, and that Cyrus would be the one that God would use to mete out his punishment and restore his children to their homeland. And that's exactly what happens here as the story unfolds. You, by the way, you can look in, if you want to read about that, look in the book of Isaiah and begin about Isaiah chapter 39 and read through Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50. Read those chapters and you see the, the prophecies of Isaiah unfold against Israel in the sense that God raises up the Babylonians, but then also against the Babylonians in that God raises up the Persians to destroy the Babylonians. And so these, literally what's happening here is that the word of God is coming true. The word of God is coming true. Some scholars believe that literally, if you were to, if you were really to get to the heart of the matter, what's the, the prophecy here itself means 62. That the most literal meaning of these words would mean 62 divided by the Persians, something along those lines. And so we see the interpretation given by Daniel. And then finally look at the, the fourth movement, if you will, in the text is the impeachment of the king. The impeachment of the king. Verse 30 we read, That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now here's what's significant about this. First of all, there's some question as to who is this Darius the Mede, because we know that the king of the Persians was Cyrus I or Cyrus the Great. But in Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 6, there's a reference here to Darius. If you do some study into the language, into the, 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 the name Darius, it's believed that likely Darius the Mede is in reference here to 
whomever would have been the, the immediate ruler over the, the Babylonian empire now as the Cyrus the Persian has conquered him, whomever Cyrus would have appointed over the Babylonian part of his, of his new empire would have been this Darius the Mede. And that this says that Darius was 62 years old. You know what's significant about that? How many years did I say had passed since the fall of the fall of, of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar? 62 years, right? What was the, what was the most literal meaning of the, the, the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall? It included that number, 62, right? Scholars believe that literally God is, is telling Belshazzar, I'm going to deliver you into the hands of a 62-year-old Persian here. This very night, these, the, these words came true because Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and the kingdom was conquered by the Persian army here. God raises them up. Belshazzar was impeached from his throne. This accusation was made against him, and that's what an impeachment is. An impeachment is when a formal charge is made against someone who is in, in power, someone who rules, right? That formal charge against them, that they would be impeached, that they would be deposed because of their, their crimes, because of their guilt for whatever that is. And that's exactly what happened in this story, that Belshazzar was impeached by God himself who removed him because of his desecration and his dishonoring of the Lord and, and the instruments of the Lord from the temple. So we see the idolatry, the interruption, the interpretation, and even ultimately the impeachment. What, what does all of this mean for us, right? It's, it, it's really an interesting story. But what, what might it mean for us as we, as we turn that corner and begin to think about, okay, well, in our lives, how do we, how do we take this truth and bring it home for us? And I want to offer three things this morning that I think fit with the application of what's happening here in, in our own lives. The first one is this is we need to understand that our sin has consequences. Your sin and my sin, that our sins have consequences. All of the events that are happening in this story really transpire as a result of sin. The fact that, the, the fact that Judah fell to the Babylonians and that the Babylonians are now falling to the Persians, all of these things are a result of the sins of people over time, that they lived in sin. And we need to understand that our sin always bears consequences for us. Sometimes it seems like we can sin and get away with it. It seems like we, that we sin and it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's just us in my mind, I've always visualized sin as having this sort of an effect, though. If you, if you think, of, think of even of this story, think of how the Persians diverted the flow of the river into the marshland, into the, the plains surrounding the city. The flow of that river was diverted somehow because they created a barrier. Sin creates a barrier between us and God. And the flow, the, the communion, the relationship that we experience between between ourselves and the Lord is, is, is blocked, if you will, is blockaded by our sin. It's, it becomes a barrier between us and God. And in much the same way that the sins quite literally created a barrier that allowed the people to fall, the, the Babylonians to fall to the Persians, sin will always create a, a barrier between us and God that will lead to a fall. Secondly, we see this, that pride brings ruin. Not only does sin bear consequences, there's always a price to pay for sin, but we see that pride brings ruin in our lives. 
Belshazzar was a prideful man, an arrogant man. And, and at this moment when his kingdom was surrounded by an army that, that, would, that would ultimately do them in, he was feasting and boasting of the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But those gods could do nothing to save him, right? Because they were nothing but vain idols. Pride ultimately brought ruin in his life. And we need to understand in our lives as well that pride brings ruin. Now, the pride that you and I have, it, it, it won't be the same. It won't look the same as, as Belshazzar's pride, right? I doubt anyone goes home today and, and, you, and, and you worship you know, a gold object in your house. But don't we really do the same when we think about how we, we make money our God, Right? And the pursuit of money becomes our God. We make our possessions. We make the things that it could afford us. Those become a God to us in the sense that our lives are spent chasing after these worthless objects ultimately. These things that, that have no real eternal consequence. Pride brings ruin in our lives. When we selfishly and pridefully chase after the things that we desire, the wants of our hearts, instead of being in tune with what God is doing and what he would do in our lives, then we have set ourselves up for a fall in our sin and our pride. And third, I think we see this truth, is that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, promised that God would ultimately deliver his people and that he would use Cyrus as his instrument of delivery. He also, Isaiah, I mean, they're foretold that the Babylonians would conquer the Israelites because the Israelites selfishly and pridefully had, had stubbornly ignored and turned their backs on the clear teaching of God. They had, they had disobeyed God. They had lived in sin. They had lived in pride. And so they fell. The Babylonians who followed them lived in sin, lived in pride. They too fell. But God is faithful to his promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Jesus, right? All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And Paul says that is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. What that means for us is that all of God's promises ultimately are kept in Jesus, and that's why we praise him. Because we understand that of all the things that we need in this life, of all the, the needs that you and I have, the greatest need that any of us have is for forgiveness from our sin. The very same sin that leads to our destruction, the very same sin that, that leads us to live with pride and rebellion against God is the very same thing that will cause us to fall. And yet, God kept his promise in that he made a way for us to be forgiven. There was nothing you could do to save yourself from your pride because it's too late in truth. Even if you could live a perfect life from this point forward, you could never go back and pay for your sins of the past unless it was to offer your life which means you would be condemned and judged. And yet, God made a way so that you wouldn't have to because he gave himself as the sacrifice. You know, it's interesting in 
the story of Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecies. If you follow Isaiah's prophecies, I told you that you could read from Isaiah 39 until about Isaiah 49 or Isaiah 50, but if you keep reading in Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Isaiah begins to prophesy and tell of a king who would be coming, a suffering servant who would allow himself to be broken and poured out for his people to redeem them. Of course, those are prophecies of the Messiah, the chosen one. They're prophecies of Jesus, that in telling the story of what would happen to his people, ultimately Isaiah points toward Jesus, and he says, all of these things will be fixed in the Messiah. All of these problems, all of these sins, all of this ruin will ultimately be paid for by the one whom God will send, the servant of God, the Messiah, that God will send to pay for the sins of his people so that they might be ultimately restored in the same way you and I can be restored and forgiven when we trust in Jesus. And this, morning, this morning, in a moment, we're going to have a time, of, a time of invitation, a time of response. And during this time of response this morning, I wonder, would you, be, would you be bold enough? Would you be brazen enough? We see the boldness, the, the, the brazenness, the fire in, in, the, in the life of Daniel in this story. Would you be bold enough have enough courage and a fire to admit before God your, your sin, your, your pridefulness that has stubbornly placed you at odds with God and would you be willing to humble yourself so that you might receive the gift of his promise, that you might receive the gift of Christ. If there's anyone here today who's never trusted in Jesus, you've never made him truly the Lord and the Savior of your life by trusting in him, then I pray that today, you would be willing to humble your heart before God. You would be willing to bow your knee, as it were, before him and receive Jesus Christ and his payment for your sin. And maybe, maybe you're here and, and you've trusted in Christ, but still stubbornly, you, you find yourself always wrestling and at odds because there's that, that, that selfish pride inside of you that, that rears its head, that's always looking for a way to assert itself. And what you need today is to be humbled before God. You need to surrender to Him. Confess your sin. Humble yourself before Him. The pride, the sin that you've been living with, that you might receive again that wave of His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness washing over you as you humble your heart. And, and maybe for you, it's not ultimately receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior because you've, you've taken that step, but it is bowing your heart nonetheless and living as though he were truly the Lord of your life, that he were on the throne of your heart, as it were. Would you be willing during our response today to have the kind of boldness, the brazenness that says, I will not, I will not live in prideful arrogance, but rather I will humble my heart before God. In this moment, as we sing this song, our altar will be open so that you can come and pray. Our staff will be here at the front ready to receive you, ready to pray with you, encourage you, even if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus today, ready to, to, to lead you through a, a prayer of faith that you might surrender your heart and your life to him. My challenge to you would be this. Don't live like the prideful, wicked king who refused, who stubbornly refused to humble his heart before God. Instead, would you be the one who would, who would yield yourself to him, that you might receive his his mercy and his forgiveness in your life today. Our altars will be open as we sing the song and we invite you to come. I want to ask you to pray with me first. And as we do, 
Let's go before God this morning, and, and, and as it were, let's, let's set the stage, if, if I can say it that way, for him to move in our lives as we humble ourselves before him now. God, we thank you that you are merciful, that you are compassionate. Lord, that you, that you don't destroy us the way that we deserve, that you don't strike us down the way that, that we so clearly deserve, but rather in your mercy, God, you've provided a way for us to be forgiven if we would humble ourselves, if we would yield ourselves before you. Lord, move in our hearts today. Expose the sin in our own eyes, God. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to see it as, as wrong, as sin before you. Lord, expose our sin before our own eyes, that we would see it, that we would confess it, repent of it. Lord, lead us now in this moment back to you as we humble our hearts before you. Lord, we thank you for your promises that ultimately they're found in none other than you yourself as you gave yourself for us. And we give you praise for that now, Lord, as we, as we live out our response to you. That's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together, and as we sing this song this morning, again, our altars are open, our staff are here ready to receive you. If God is working, would you humble yourself? Would you turn to him this morning now as we sing this song? The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Makes me lie down in fields of She leads me beside the water so still. And I am fulfilled. For He
into our message this morning, that God is the one who is able to restore us. You know, it's interesting that uh, in, in spite of all that Israel had gone through, and in spite of all of the, the punishment that God allowed them to experience for their sin, He made a promise that He would restore them. And we understand, as the prophet Isaiah told us, that that, of course, was, was ultimately delivered in, in Jesus Jesus restores us because he, he in, a, in a sense, fulfills the promise. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. Today, I can tell you this from my own experience and, and, and from what I've lived through in, in my own life, that whatever you're facing, whatever you're against, whatever problem, whatever sin is in your life, whatever situations and circumstances you are facing, Jesus is able to deliver you. He's able to restore you from it if you will turn to him. My prayer is that you would understand that this morning and that you would turn your heart toward him. I invite you to have a seat, and as you do that, I want to draw your attention to the the registration cards that I mentioned earlier in our service today. 